This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear Ken Sandy speak about relational wisdom for crucial pastoral issues. Ken Sandy has founded two organizations that are dedicated to preserving and transforming relationships. Those organizations are Peacemaker Ministries and Relational Wisdom 360, otherwise known as RW360. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered in June 2019 at the PCA General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Let's listen to Ken Sandy as he speaks on relational wisdom for crucial pastoral issues. Good to see you here. How many of you were in the previous workshop? Okay. Um, What I want to do in this workshop, first of all, my name is Ken Sandy. Um, Many of you may know me from a ministry called Peacemaker Ministries, where I worked for 30 years. 2012, I stepped down from Peacemaker to launch this new ministry, Relational Wisdom 360. And basically, what I wanted to do was after 30 years of putting out fires, I wanted to spend the rest of my life preventing fires or getting upstream of conflict, if you will. Um, our, Our material still includes a lot of peacemaking content, but the main focus is how do we develop relational skills that will prevent most of those conflicts, or if they do arise, enable us to resolve them more quickly and more successfully. So these are relational skills that are are designed to build relationships, strengthen relationships, and prevent conflict. Um, What I'm going to do, you should all have a pamphlet, uh, Relational Wisdom 360 pamphlet, which is a summary of the key principles. And then there's also a one-sheet handout called Relational Wisdom for Crucial Pastoral Issues. And this is something um, you, can, you can make a few notes on. But also, uh, this is available, that handout is available on our website. You'll see a link at the bottom of the first page where you can download a PDF. And most of the points I'm going to make have got a detailed article or blog expanding on what I'm going to say. So I'm going to introduce you to some basic principles. And if there's any here that you want to dig into more deep, deeply, Go and download that, uh, that PDF, and then you can click on the links and actually have a lot more detail on any one of these topics. But I want to alert you to these. Basically, going back here, what, what I want to do in this workshop is share with you some observations I've made over the last 37 years of the things that, that if you do these things, You'll have a lot less conflict. There's a good chance you'll stay in your church until everybody just agrees that it's in a very happy, good way. There's a transition that might be made rather than being forced out in a way that leaves everyone bitter. 
And I, I remember I was down in a um, bed and breakfast in Chattanooga a few years ago. A woman came in to clean the room, and I just began chatting with her. And turns out her husband had been a uh, PCA pastor. He'd been forced out of his church in a very uh, unpleasant conflict with the elders. They were both so embittered toward the church that he was now selling cars, and she was cleaning bed and breakfast. And they, they had not been back in a church for two years. And that is a story that is repeated over and over and over again in many cases. I just hate to see those things happen. So what I want to do with you is share with you some basic principles I think can enrich and strengthen and make your ministries more effective and productive and also prevent some of those, those painful um, fallings out. So first point I want to make is that healthy churches are relational churches. Um, the church is designed not to be a seminary. It's not a place where we simply impart knowledge. As Paul writes, knowledge puffs us up, love builds us up. And that's not to say that we don't need knowledge. We should be studying God's word, sitting under good teaching. I thank God that my pastor knows Hebrew and Greek in appropriate ways. He can bring that in to, to even illuminate more, more fully what a passage says. I'm grateful for that. But I'm especially grateful that he is a man who not only is really solid doctrinally, but he is humble and he is relational. And I don't always see those things coming together. Really smart, intellectual, well-trained, theologically rigorous people are not always highly relational. So we want to have relational churches where people feel loved. They are, in fact, loved and cared for, even if there's issues going on. And relational churches have relational pastors. Um, pastors tend to take on the person. Our churches tend to take on the personality of their pastors. And I've even noticed that sessions often reflect the personalities of their pastors. One of the PCA churches I worked with, very intellectual pastor, very bright man, very articulate, very good in the pulpit, very rigorous. His leadership training course was at seminary level for his elders. I mean, it went like a three-year training program of, to be qualified to be an elder. And he tended to attract a lot of elders who were engineers and lawyers and doctors, highly educated people. And so they had this highly educated, very theologically sound leadership team, and yet their people did not feel they were loved. And I don't think that's a successful church, having a bunch of brilliant, well-educated people who don't love their people. So relational leaders also know <clears throat> that there's one relationship that is rarely restored as i mentioned in the previous workshop in my experience i have seen hundreds of marriages i've done 600 divorce mediations over half of which involved adultery and over half of those cases we saw fully restored i've seen conflicts come back together again in amazing ways you never would have dreamed that they would be restored but the one relationship i rarely see successfully restored is when i've seen when a pastor gets seriously crossways with his leadership team. I don't know what it is, but there's some dynamic that goes on. And in many cases, the falling out is so bad, they leave and they're embittered toward each other and they just won't even speak to each other. There's cases I've been involved in. We come in, God really does some great work in people's lives. There's humility, there's confession, there's repentance and forgiveness. But in most of those cases, the end result is still that the pastor decides to part, but he can part, depart in peace with goodwill, with the blessing of the elders, and they, they can move on with goodwill. But in those cases where they try to keep him there, I know of one or two that succeeded and continued to flourish, 
But all the other ones I know where the pastor tried to stay, even after a good personal reconciliation, um, within a year or so, they just decided this just wasn't working. And so I, I just want to alert you to this. This is one of those things. It's like contracting a disease for which there is no cure. You, you don't want to get this disease of serious conflict with your leadership team. You want to nip it in the bud. You want to cultivate close relationships. You want to create an atmosphere where people can share things, have difficult conversations early on before they develop into really catastrophic breakdowns. So you want to really stay on top of it. Um, Relational leaders also know that biblical wisdom is relational, not primarily informational. We are very good in the PCA at imparting information. We've got people who can be in the pulpit every Sunday, impart information very, very well. Um, At least in those cases, I'm glad when the, the imparting still has practical application. The thing I ask at the end of every sermon is, so what? So what? Did I just get knowledge that just sort of built up my knowledge base? Or did I learn something this morning that inspires me and encourages me and shows me how to live differently Monday morning as I go out into the world to engage people in the love of Christ. And some, some people are just really good at imparting information. Some can impart information that is relevant and practical and useful and, and it's sanctifying. Um, but even then, if that, if that pastor doesn't know how to love his people, if the elders don't know how to engage their people in a loving way, that they feel like they have true shepherds who care for them, who are there for them, uh, you're still missing a big, big component of what I believe church is about. It's a, it's a family. It's a body. Um, also, relational leaders recognize that uh, often our greatest weakness is just the effect that sin has on our greatest strength. And, I, and I've seen this again and again and again. There's a blog I wrote on this. And you can just look at a lot of the things people are really strong in. And sin is like the number negative one. Negative 1 times 10 is negative 10. Negative 1 times 100 is negative 100. So you can have someone with some great intellectual skills. For example, one PCA pastor, very bright, very articulate, very verbal. Every time his elders tried to talk to him about some delicate issues, I've never seen a man so adept at changing the conversation, moving another direction, blaming things. He had the hardest time just listening and receiving correction and it eventually cost him his pulpit. So we we can have this, you know, one way I've heard it described is we often in Reformed churches, we take doctrine and we put it like a trophy up on the mantle and we take it down once a week and polish it. And we're just very good at our doctrine and theology, but not always at loving people. But on the other hand, if you've got people who are just very tenderhearted and kind and compassionate, that may be sort of their strength. Well, the weakness is they don't want to confront, they don't want to teach on tough issues, there's other things there. So on each one of these things, we have to say, okay, what is my strength? How How can sin distort this, and how do I need to counteract it? It's like having a car that pulls to the left or the right. Relational leaders should always be bringing their people the gospel. We often, I think it's, it's too bad, but we often think of the gospel, what I would call a two-door gospel. It's where we come through one door conversion. We're now regenerate and born again and adopted into God's family. But then we sort of take it like a paper plane ticket, put it in our pocket, and we go through life until we're in a hospital room, you know, many years later about to die. And we pull it out again and say, don't worry, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to go to heaven. But between those two doors, we often don't live the gospel. We live the law. 
And here, the most vivid example I saw of this, I was asked to help with a, a conflicted church in California or Florida one time about eight elders, very bright guys. I knew the Bible really, really well. They had a falling out between the pastor and two of the elders and three of the other elders, so their, their elder board, or I think there's, no, there's eight of them, was 50-50 divided, and they'd been deadlocked for, for months. So they asked me to come down and, and work with them to try to work out this deadlock. And these, these guys knew the Bible really well. They'd been writing letters and position papers and emails and things back and forth for about a year. And they sent me copies of all of this. So I had about 90 pages of material. On average, about five biblical citations per page. So what is that, 90 times five, 450 Bible citations? I'm on the airplane flying down to Florida, going through rereading this stuff, and suddenly it just struck me. There was not one citation to a gospel-related passage. It was all law. Thou shalt, thou didn't, I did, you're wrong, I'm right. And they were using the Bible either to justify themselves or to condemn the other person. And there was nothing in there about the, the whole fact that we are redeemed by the love of Christ. Uh, we're part of his family. We're adopted into his family. We're transformed. We're changed. Our sins are forgiven. And so when I got down there, we started sort of a storytelling phase. And I let him talk for about a half an hour. I was hearing the same thing. And I, so I asked them was, I said, guys, let, let's pause for a minute. I want you to do sort of just an imagination thing. Let's imagine we could back this whole dispute up 12 months, change one historical fact. Let's just assume, just for the sake of imagination discussion, that Jesus Christ was not resurrected from the grave. Just let's change that one historical fact. And now hit the play button. And now move ahead with the same issues. What would be different in how you engage each other if Jesus had not been resurrected from the dead? And they sort of looked, had this puzzled look on their face, as many of you do right now, thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Why do we bring this guy down here? What's he, you know, they just, they didn't get it. And I just sat there quietly, didn't say a thing. And finally, one of the men said, dear God, nothing would be different. We've forgotten. We have a risen Savior. Now, bringing the gospel into a conflict does not mean we all just hold hands, sing kumbaya, and walk away. We don't cover over sin. The gospel says sin is so serious that the Son of God had to die to save the world. We take sin seriously, but we do it in light of the cross. That this brother who I'm opposed is precious to God. He is God's servant. He is God's son. I need to treat him with respect. And if I think he's an heir, I go to him not to condemn him and beat him, but as a brother to love him and to win him. And I also realize if if this brother has sinned, I don't need to impose another penalty on him. Jesus has paid for that. He doesn't need to make a second payment for that sin. I mean, the gospel has all sorts of implications as we deal with conflict in the church. And we should always frame all of our conversations in the light of the fact that we are bought with the blood of the Lamb. This other person is bought with the blood of the Lamb. I'm going to relate to this person in love and grace and compassion and tenderness the same way God has related to me. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. While this brother is still caught in his sin, I'm going to love him. And that attitude of love, compassion, tenderness, it is communicated. And I, I just see this in these conversations. If your attitude is one of a critical spirit and condemnation and anger, it'll come out in your words. If it is of tenderness and concern and kindness to win someone back to the right track, 
that comes across as well. So that's, a, that's one of the most important things, both at a church leadership level, but even at a personal family level. Um, relational leaders deliberately develop their capacity for empathy and compassion. There's a free download on our website called Seven Steps to Empathy, and it's how do you actually develop this God-given capacity we all have. It's part of our wiring as an image bearer is empathy and compassion, but it's like playing the piano. We all have the ability to hit keys on a keyboard, but if you want to get good at it, you have to practice. Some people have a better ability than others, certainly, but we can all get better. And what I've no- noticed in many of the churches I've worked with where there's a conflict, where the pastor's gotten sideways, either with his leadership team or with a significant group of people in the congregation, it's a lack of empathy. It's a lack of compassion. just doesn't have the ability to read people, to understand what's going on. There are so many cues that we send to each other subtly and indirectly. And, and they're not just direct statements. I'll give you an example. I went into a coffee shop in Billings one time, saw somebody <coughs> from our church, and I said, hey, Bob, how you doing? He said, oh, I'm okay. Oh, I'm okay. Now, that's a different answer from saying, oh, I'm okay. Very slight change in voice inflection. Oh, I'm Okay. Most of us wouldn't pick up on it. There was a time in my life where we'd gone right by and say, oh, that's great, see you later, have a good day. Walked out the door. But I picked up on it. What he really said to me was, I'm not okay. That little hesitation says, I'm not okay, but I'm not sure you care enough about me to really, for me to open up safely to you and share my heart. I'm not sure you'll care enough. And so what men tend to do, women sometimes too, but men are even worse at this, is they'll lay down one card. They'll give you one little hint of something in their life, and they're going to see what you do with it. And if I'd said, oh, okay, great, see you later, and walked out the door, that would have been end of discussion. But I picked up on that inflection by God's grace. I said, what's going on? I said, oh, no big deal. Family stuff. You know how it is. Second card. You're still seeing what I'm going to do with it. I said, Bob, what's going on with your family? Oh, Billy's at that age, you know, 16 years old. You know how teenagers are. Each one of those things, he's he's actually saying, Ken, there's an exit. You can leave if you want. He was allowing me to leave the conversation in a way that wouldn't make him feel bad or make me feel bad, but he was still giving me information to see if I would stay in the conversation. I said, teenagers? Man, that could be really serious. Bob, what's going on? At that point, it's like all the tumblers sort of click, click, clicked into line. And his shoulders just dropped. And he said, oh, Jimmy and I had a conflict last night, and I just, I lost it. I told him I could hardly wait till he went away to college, and he stormed out the door, and I haven't seen him since. Now, his first comment was, oh, I'm okay. Folks, if anybody, if anybody in a church should be sensitive to a limping lamb, to a wounded sheep, to a sheep who's got a fever, whatever their spiritual illness may be, if anybody should pick up on that, it should be the shepherd. Too often it's the ladies in our church that are picking up on these things. I'm thankful for that. 
But our pastors and our elders, they're flying at 32,000 feet too often, and they're not getting any of this. And I mean, I would say this in my life. Often, when I was an elder, my wife was the one who came to me and said, hey, Ken, have you talked to so-and-so and so lately? No, what's going on? I mean, she, she picked up on some signs that gone right by me. And I thank God for that. She has very finely tuned antenna. But if you're a shepherd of the flock, you need to learn how to read those things. Even learning how someone walks. Did you know you can tell a lot about people how they just walk? There's a lot of people who walk into church on Sunday. They're just walking nicely in, and they're confident, and they're moving along at a nice pace. They're smiling. But another Sunday, they're just sort of walking in, maybe about 90% of normal speed. You can pick up on that. Something's weighing on them. Something's weighing on them. And we, we can learn to dig in a little bit deeper. A good friend of mine had lost his job. <laughs> and I said, hey, Gary, how do you feel about that? He said, oh, I know God will take care of me. I said, well, I know that's what you believe, but how do you feel? And again, I'm sort of like, a, I'm scared. We often don't get to that level. God will take care of me. And that's the end of the conversation. So this idea of empathy and compassion, I just encourage you to download, go to the free downloads on our website. It says seven steps to empathy. There's very practical things you can do to learn how to cultivate this gift for empathy and pass it on to your elders. If anybody in the church, again, should be empathetic and compassionate, it's the shepherds of the sheep, shepherds of the flock. So these are skills we can develop. Um, Relational leaders are both approachable and accountable. Uh, one of the major dynamics I see in churches that go through splits or forced pastoral exits, they've got pastors which, who have what I call a steep authority curve. It's like a, a mountain like this with very steep slopes instead of this. And if you've got a pastor who, when people come to him and say, you know, I've got a concern about something, have you checked your attitude? If your first thing is to make sure someone's got the right attitude... Man, you just put a big stop sign in front of that person and everybody else. If your first thing is to, to blame, to shift the blame, to point it back at someone else, to deflect it from someone else, to someone else, word gets around, and pretty soon people won't come to you. And what happens is these things build up and build up and build up. It's like a rubber band getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Most of the forced pastoral exits I've dealt with, the pastor had, well, there were clues there that he was ignoring. <laughs> I'll say that. But he was ignoring a lot of clues that tensions were building in his congregation, either with the, the congregation as a whole or with his leadership team, and they suddenly just snapped. And, you know, when you sit down and really have an honest conversation, most of them say, yeah, I knew this. I just didn't know what to do, didn't know how to face it. So we need to realize to be approachable. And there's a very long, it's like a six-page article on approachability uh, that you can get if you download the PDF for this, um, this talk. And I just encourage you, again, with your leadership team, go through with your, with your fellow elders and deacons. Anyone in leadership should be approachable. That when someone comes to them with a concern or a suggestion, they receive it. They welcome it. They say, boy, thank, I hadn't thought of that. That's a great insight. Could you help us implement that? I mean, that encourages people. They say, wow, I'm not going to just run into a defensive guy who says, I got this all together. It doesn't fit our annual plan for right now. Just forget it. But you receive advice. You receive even some criticism and correction, you're responsive to that, that stuff, uh, that sends a message to people. You keep things out in the open, you work with them. But then accountability is the other issue. 
Um, I tend to see sort of two extremes in churches is where we are, we are either overprotecting, well, let's start with underprotecting a pastor, where every little complaint, every little, you know, the music wasn't right this week and the sermon was too long and all these little things that are often style and preference, they keep coming at the pastor over and over again. And depending on the size of your church, that, that can be a lot of distraction, just lots of things coming. And if you're in a large church, a good friend of mine has got a 3,000-member PCA church, and just all these little things coming. And finally, the elders said, listen, we need to develop a way to filter these things without discouraging and deflecting, but just to find a way where we, we don't have the pastor always dealing with these things, especially when there is someone who's made it their role to just sort of be the professional critic of the pastor. And the pastor can be very gracious at first, try to listen to that and respond to it. But there's some situations people just, they're not going to respond. They're not going to take it well. They're going to keep coming back, finding fault with something else. And I've had to do this as an elder where a couple of us went and talked to somebody because this person had been just criticizing the pastor for so long. He had tried in every way that was reasonable, we felt, to engage. And finally, we had to sit down with this person and talk about what was a critical attitude. It's like the lady who came to the pastor and said, Pastor, I believe I have a spiritual gift of criticism. <laughs> and the pastor said, be like the person in the Bible. Take your gift and bury it. Uh, <laughs> so sometimes the elders have to go and defend the pastor. So if, if your pastor is underprotected, it can be just wear them down. And by the way, the person it really affects long term is the pastor's wife. Because the pastor can often engage and talk, and at least has a satisfaction to Fanny. She's back there just hearing these things, and it just, they're magnified by a spouse, and it is so hurtful. The spouse often breaks before the pastor does because they don't have the way to engage. But the other thing is, we can overprotect a pastor. It's like the pastor who, a couple of women came to the elders and said that they'd been counseling, and he'd, send, he'd said and suggested some things they just weren't very comfortable with. Sort of some insinuations and things like that. Oh, no, he would never do that. He would never do that. The accusations got a little bit more serious. They continued to circle the wagons around the pastor. They couldn't believe that their pastor would do these things until literally he was caught in a motel with another woman. So if you overprotect and don't take things seriously, you could have a problem brewing, and it's like cancer. It grows and grows and grows until the only solution is amputation. You don't want that. So there's two articles here on approachability and accountability. I would encourage you to go through them with your elder team, with your session, and just talk about them. Say, how do we implement some of these things in our church? Even having a conflict resolution, grievance process, people have complaints. If they're not satisfied with what they hear from the pastor, can they talk to the elders, etc.? You know, in the PCA, we're, we're really big on judicial process. And I think some people just love, what can we bring up on judicial process this year? Um, but there is a place for an appellate system. There's a place for other people to get involved in some situations to resolve them. Um, another thing that is a really helpful skill is to always be building passport. Always be building passport. Every time you step into the pulpit and preach, you're either building or destroying passport. Every time you greet people at the door, have a conversation in the hallway, you are building or destroying passport. And the, what do I mean by that is, Passport is sort of how do you gain the right or the permission to enter into the delicate parts of someone else's life? Where they would allow you and they share things and my marriage is really struggling and I'm not sure I want to do this or I'm having doubts about God or whatever it might be, whatever sin they're struggling with. 
And what I found as a conciliator, people would walk into my office and total strangers. I've had no previous contact. And I had to build passport with them very quickly if I'm going to serve them as a conciliator. And I found there's three basic questions people are asking in the back of their minds. It's not a conscious process. It's an intuitive process. But basically what they're asking themselves is, can I trust you? Can I trust you? Now, the most fundamental thing is if I tell you some really embarrassing information, are, are you going to keep it confidential? Um, now, some information cannot be kept confidential. I, I don't know if your churches have got confidentiality guidelines, but it's a very important thing to have in your church legally about, you know, someone comes in and confesses he's been sexually abusing his daughter. Whoa, you better get some official help in situations like that. But other cases, you've got to guard information. I, as an elder, I was subpoenaed in a divorce case. And fortunately, our church had some very good documents indicating confidentiality guidelines with the pastor penitent privilege documented, so I could just say no to that. But the first question is, the more serious thing is not just will you guard the information I say to you in appropriate ways, but the deeper question is this. If I share with you something really embarrassing and really shameful, are you going to think less of me? There are so many people wrestling with sin you know, when someone goes to the doctor and has got physical symptoms, they're not embarrassed to tell the doctor, you know, I can't breathe, my heart's pounding, I think I've got this. We go to the doctor because doctors deal with illness and physical defects and they help us get over them. But in the church, we still have this tendency to think, well, good Christians don't have serious sin issues. Now, we would never say that explicitly, but subtly it's sort of the attitude we have. So if a man is struggling with pornography... And he knows that, boy, if this gets out in our church, I'm put into another class. People will look at me differently. And, and so as they come to you to communicate over a period of time of your demeanor, what you say, even in a single conversation, that, listen, you can share anything with me. It is safe, and I will love you. It's like the man who came to the pastor and um, ultimately through a conversation confessed that he'd been sexually abusing children in the nursery or the children's ministry. And the pastor, of course, was shocked about this. There was legal implications, obviously. And he, oh, I know what happened. The man, when he sat down with him, he said, Pastor, I've got something I need to talk to you about. It's a little bit embarrassing. And, you know, I mean, if I share this with you, can, can I just get your promise you won't be sharing with anyone else? And the way he did it, he sort of set it up. It sounded like it might be pornography or something like that. And the pastor unwisely said, I promise this will just be between you and me. And then he said, I've been sexually abusing children in the children's ministry. So now he had a legal situation of reporting, required reporting, versus this other person uh, keeping the, his word. And he called me up and said, what do I do? He was serious about his word. He'd given his word. I said, what I would do is I go back to this man. I would say, listen, I gave you my word. I would not report this, but I just need to tell you, it's going to come out. If you've, if you've done this with multiple children, it is going to come out. It's not a question of whether or not I do it or, or whatever. It will come out. The only question is when and how. And the best way for this to come out now, God's word says, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but if he confesses and renounces and finds mercy. And I will go with you down to the authorities. And they've got a lot of latitude in what they do and their sentencing and everything else. There's a lot of latitude and if you are humble, if you are honest, if you, you know, handle this that way, you're going to be in a much better place. And I will walk with you. And the man said, no, you won't walk with me. 
And he said, yes, I will. I'm your pastor. I said, no, you won't. He said, why don't, why don't you think I will? One of the children I've abused is your daughter. The pastor's daughter. That pastor stayed faithful to his commitment. And he walked that man through the whole ordeal. He turned himself in. They did get an attorney. They talked about the pros and cons. I mean, you, you never want to do this without really talking to an attorney. But the man finally realized that I've committed a horrible sin. And he threw himself at the mercy of the judge. And the judge gave him a much more lenient sentence than he would have otherwise. But the other thing that pastor did was he reached out immediately. I said, listen, today you have got to reach out to his family his wife and his kids, because they're going to they're be so embarrassed, so ashamed, they're going to want to just run from your church when they need your church more than ever. And he was able to reach out to them, get a good grip on them, assure them they stayed in the church, had the support of the church, the love of the church. Uh, and there's an article on our website, it's called Better Way to Handle Abuse. And it's some simple principles of dealing with that situation. But here is developing passport. You talk about passport. So can I trust you? Second part of a passport is, do you really care about me? You know, you as a shepherd, if you're just operating at the preaching, teaching, theology level, and people don't really feel you love them, they're not going to open up to you. But if they know you love them, you care about them, you're there for them, you'll sacrifice for them, boy, they're going to open up a lot more in their lives. And the third thing, so it's, can I trust you? Do you care about me? Third, can you really help me? (laughs) People will not come to you. They will not invite you into the issues in their life unless they've seen, number one, you live out biblical truth and wisdom and the gospel in your life, and they've seen you help other people to do the same thing. So it's your your competence as a shepherd, as a counselor, as a pastor. So building passport, and um, you do it. For example, one way you can destroy passport is acting arrogant or proud or superior or perfection. In the pulpit, if you get up there every Sunday and you're the perfect guy that's got everything together, you're going to have people sitting there saying, man, I can never go to him. He would never understand the struggles I have. And I know this is a tension in preaching is how vulnerable and open are you about your own life. I personally, when I teach, and I'm not preaching per se, but teaching, I use stories about myself a lot. And what I find is people say, I can relate to you. You're not up on this pedestal. You, You deal with the same issues I do. And so being able to be relatable to people. Another principle is studying your people. There's a really uh, interesting blog on our website on the, the emotional intelligence of Reagan and Lincoln. And there was a great book that came out a few years ago on Lincoln, uh, uh, Goodwin's book called um, Band, let's see, um, Team of Rivals. She talks a lot about Lincoln's emotional intelligence. The other book that I reference in that blog is um, Reagan's Secret War, the whole story behind the nuclear disarmament thing. It is the most fascinating story in the world on how he had to read the emotions and the fears and the agendas of the Russians, both the military, the Politburo, and whoever was the premier at the moment. They went through four premiers while he was, Reagan was in there. They get very old men and they die quickly. But he had to understand what, what's going on inside that person. What are they afraid of? What do they want? Um, but he also had a democratically controlled Congress and a United States electorate that wasn't, wasn't as on board with all the spending and money. Reagan's attitude was, we're going to have to outspend the Russians. We've got to get into a race and sprint in a way they can't keep up with. But he was dealing with reading the emotions and agendas 
of all these opposing parties. And the place that he learned the skill to do that, he was the head of the screenwriter or the actors guild in, in Hollywood when he was an actor. He did labor negotiations with the studios. And there's a memo I linked to in that blog of his philosophy of negotiating labor management issues, and he took exactly the same principles to Moscow. And as I read that, I thought, how many pastors read their people this well? How many sit down and really think, okay, what, what's on the elders' minds? Or one particular elder who's always giving me grief. He's always opposing me. He's always throwing out the opposite view. What's going on inside of him? Why does he do this? To study it. Don't just be angry at him and bitter at him and reject him. Try to understand him. The Russians wanted to nuke us. That elder doesn't have that kind of hostility <laughs> towards you. Can't you give him the same thing? How, how well do husbands read their wives and vice versa? How well do we read a teenage child? We can just get angry and frustrated and irritated without really understanding what's going on. So reading that article, that book on Reagan, just absolutely blew me away. And I learned some wonderful things about how to be a better husband, a better father, and a better elder in my church. Um, <clears throat> Relational leaders convey solid theology through easily memorized terms. I, as you know, I, if you've read The Peacemaker, I love acrostics. Um, Dave Paulus, my dear friend who's now with the Lord, said that I never met a concept I couldn't put into an acrostic. <laughs> and I told David, you never met a nuance you didn't like. Um, if you're familiar with Dave's writings, he nuances nuances. But I love acrostics because they're, they're ways that we can... Um, take very complicated principles and put them into something that is really easy and really effective in applying in the heat of the moment. Um, I don't know if you've, any of you have seen the movie Sully about the plane that went down in the... Um, what river is that? Hudson. Um, one thing that's a little subtle point in that movie is when they hit the flight of geese and both engines go out, Sully turns to his co-pilot and he says, pull out, I forget there's an abbreviation for it. They've got a manual there with all the things that can go wrong with an airplane. And it's a quick checklist of what you do because it's a very complicated device. And the manual's about that thick, but he pulls it out, he starts thumbing through it to find the, the quick solution when both engines go out. Because he wants a four-step, do this, do this, do this, do this. And there wasn't one. There is now. But at that time, there was nothing for the provision of both engines going out. But it illustrates the idea that in a crisis situation, you want a simple three or four step process. Do this, and then this, and then this. Because when your emotions start to churn, your neocortex is getting less blood. The reasoning part of your brain, the impulse control part of your brain, is being robbed of the oxygen it needs. And if your limbic system is really churning, you're feeling really intense emotions, you get about 10 to 15 points lower IQ. In other words, you get really emotional, you get really stupid. Okay? I've been there. I've been there. So that's what the acrostics help us with. Our, our main acrostic is something we call the SOG plan. In any relational situation, I always seek to be self-aware. What's going on inside of me? What are my emotions? What are my fears? What's driving me? Other aware, what's going on in this person? You know, you could be sitting in a session meeting and one of your elders has just said something that really has offended you and you're sort of feeling a challenge. This could turn into an argument if you take just a moment to think, no, why would he say that? What's going on? 
why is he so edgy today? And just sort of think that through. You may come up with a very different response to what you say to that person. And then finally, G is God-aware. Self-aware, other-aware, God-aware. So we always encourage people to think three-dimensionally in any relational dynamic. What's going on inside of me? What's going on inside this person? What's going What's God's trying to do in this situation? So those are things you can teach to your congregation. One of the things that I really encourage is get your whole congregation on the same plane in their vocabulary. You know, some of your people, you use the word forgiveness. With their background and their family, their definition of forgiveness is, oh, okay, we're going to drop it for the moment, but the next time we have a fight, it's fair to bring it up again. There's people that really believe that. That was their family structure. Every time they saw their parents fight, they gunny sacked. They stored all the offenses, had a new conflict. They dumped everything out on the table. Now, that's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. When God forgives us, he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. So actually getting people to define forgiveness, confession, repentance, empathy, compassion, all those things in a similar way, then you're communicating at the same level, and it's much easier to deal with relationships. Um, relational leaders practice clarity plus charity. There's two blogs on this. Clarity. My first class as an engineer, <clears throat> the, uh, literally the first week, first class, the professor said something that captured the essence of engineering. He said an engineer is someone who, um, oh, no, I'm sorry, he said as a professional, it is important that you communicate not, so, uh, not simply so you can be understood, but so clearly you cannot be misunderstood. Now, sometimes there's no big difference there. But I have seen churches split because the elders had one thing in mind, was a good legitimate agenda, but they communicated in a way that left it vulnerable to multiple interpretations. People took up an offense, click started, the argument picked up momentum. Pretty soon before they knew it, they were involved in a huge conflict. And it took a long time to clarify. So anytime you're communicating either with your elders or with your congregation, make sure you communicate so clearly you cannot be misunderstood. Now, nobody can be 100% all the time. No matter how hard you try, people can still misunderstand. They may be looking for something to disagree with. But I, I just think in many cases, for example, um, the PCA church I was involved in in Billings, we were originally a OPC church for many, many years, founded as OPC, and then decided the elders thought we would really be better off in the PCA. It was nothing where we were rejecting the OPC, but the closest OPC church was you know, 800 miles away. And we just couldn't have any kind of interaction with other elders. And so we thought similar theology is some good things. And the process the elders went through to switch from OPC to PCA it was a delicate process because a lot of our members were just hardcore committed OPC and they had some negative attitudes toward the PCA. They're all Masons and all this stuff, you know. And it was just amazing the things that surfaced, the, the objections that surfaced. And I was so impressed on how the elders walked through that. It was a six-year process. We didn't, we didn't feel the need to rush. We, we researched it a lot. We started preaching and teaching. We had congregational meetings. And it was really interesting to see how, even in a congregational meeting, you share, here's what we're thinking of. We want your input. We want your questions. We want your ideas. Here's the issues we're concerned about. We want to be engaged with other churches. We want to be iron sharpening iron with other elders. We laid out the things we're looking for. And we solicited questions. 
And one thing I always encourage churches to do in a meeting like that, if people are likely to raise questions and objections, get a flip chart and a big black marker. Because when someone says, oh, I've heard that everyone in the PCA is a Mason. Now, I'd never heard that before, but someone had heard that. And so I, on the flip chart, I wrote, are PCA people Masons? And I wrote it. There's something psychologically that happens to a person when they're offering something, they're a little bit edgy, a little bit challenging, and they're, they're thinking you may just resist them, but they see you actually write their question up there. They go, oh, they took that seriously. At the end, we had about six major issues that people in the congregation raised. We said, you know, these are important issues. We need to look into these things. We're going to schedule another meeting in about a month, and we'll report back to you on these things. And there's just this process of people feeling respected, feeling their issues were being addressed, we're taking them seriously. Um, found out that not everybody in PCA is a Mason. Um, <laughs> there's other things more serious. But communicating so clearly, you cannot be misunderstood. And then charity is another concept. There's a great book by Edwards, Charity and Its Fruits. And what I mean by charity, especially in charitable judgments, is training your people over and over and emphasizing it. You know, I think it was D.L. Moody that said Christians are like leaky buckets. You fill them up on Sunday and it all leaks away. <laughs> so you can teach one Sunday on something and within a month people forget it. So you keep reteaching and reinforcing. But the idea of charitable judgments is if someone says or does something um, that could either be offensive or not, you want, to do, you want to believe the best interpretation of it until you have facts to prove otherwise. You always want to give the best interpretation of something until you have facts to prove otherwise. Instead of jumping to the first negative judgment and condemning somebody, you think, well, I don't think that's really what he meant. I need to go and talk to him. And so just coming and asking for clarification. But that alone, of all the principles, if you just taught your congregation to have this habit of charitable judgments, you would prevent so many offenses from, from percolating into something that was going to be hurtful. Relational leaders are peacemakers. Um, I spent 30 years of my life training and teaching this. Uh, a biblical principle that I think we've all seen is where two or three come together in Jesus' name, there will soon be conflict. And, uh, <laughs> and it's true. It's true. Um, the most bizarre conflict I ever saw in a church was where two couples met through an infertility support group, became good friends, went out and had pie and coffee after the meetings each week, and at one of those meetings, one of them said, well, you know, between the four of us here at this table, two of us are able to conceive a child. And they did. The husband in one side and the wife in the other. You know, there's no saying sin by definition is stupid. And this was not only sinful, it was they did not even agree beforehand who got the baby. If you can believe that. They, they were just so desirous to have a baby. They didn't think about it. Turned into a lawsuit. Television cameras were out at the church. It was horrible. So anyway, we need to be peacemakers. And not just you. You need also to train your people. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And if you teach your people to be peacemakers and they resolve most of their conflicts one-on-one, -on -one, they never even come to you. That's so much better. They never even come to you. So regularly teaching and reinforcing just the, the myriad of biblical principles in the, in the peacemaker. Um, 
in the Bible, we've organized them in the Peacemaker, this fall we'll be coming out with a new online course on peacemaking and also a DVD Sunday school set. So if your church hasn't gone through these principles recently, we'll be providing that. It'll be tied into the relational wisdom paradigm, so a whole new set of training materials. Relational leaders know how to diffuse explosive meetings. I've been involved in a lot of interesting congregational meetings. And they literally, it's like a powder keg is sitting there and someone's just an inch from the fuse with a match and they're just getting ready to explode. And one of the ways that when I'm conducting those meetings, like at a Christian school, you know, staff meeting, parents are there, they're mad about something or congregation meeting, um, I lay down these ground rules. I write this out and everybody gets when they come in. and say, we're going to have a candid, open discussion today but we're gonna follow a specific pattern for our communications to keep us on track. So when you get up to the microphone, what I want you to do, I, I define what the issue is. The issue is, um, you know, should we ask the youth pastor to resign? You know, so people are unhappy about the youth pastor. Youth pastors have the lowest tenure of any position in a church, <laughs> partly due to their inexperience, partly because there's lots of people that can be unhappy with them. Um, so let's say that's the issue. Should, the, should we ask the youth pastor to resign? Some people have gotten unhappy with him. So, so what I want to do is when you get to the mic, I want you to say briefly stated, how do you feel about this problem? I want people to start talking about their emotions because their emotions are driving them. We don't talk about emotions a lot in the PCA, but they are a powerful force that we need to get out in the open and talk about. What have you done that might have contributed to this problem? Matthew 7, first get the log out of your own eye. Most people don't go there naturally. You have to really require them to. And I will moderate the media and say, oh, Bob, go back to point number two first. What have you done that may have contributed to this problem? Number three, what do you think would please God as we work through this situation? Number four, what steps have you already taken to make things better? Number five, what are you now willing to do to help resolve this problem? And then the point they wanted to start with, what do you suggest other people do? That's where we want to start. We want to go right there. This guy, he's, he's not a good youth pastor. He did these things. He needs to go. That's where they want to go. And, but if you make them go through that grid, it's like a filter. It's just filtering out a lot of the anger, a lot of the sinful attitudes, etc. Uh, it's a powerful way just to have a, a constructive meeting. Okay, a couple more things here, then I'm going to do some Q&A. Relational leaders move outside the four walls of their churches and engage their communities in constructive ways that open the door for sharing the gospel. I was teaching down in uh, Montgomery some years ago, and I had people from the large Baptist churches and uh, Trinity, the, the Presbyterian church down there, PCA church, and some of the other ones, and during one of the casual conversations, they just made sort of jokingly the point, yeah, the, the Baptist churches evangelize and witness and bring people to Christ, and then eventually they come over to our church, we teach them better theology. And they said it sort of jokingly, but they, they really meant it. And I had some conversations with people, and they, they admitted, we are not good at witnessing and evangelizing. And I think, it's, I think it is a, a pretty common weakness in Reformed churches. Um, I, I admire the SBC. I wish we could sort of draw some blood out of them and infuse it into a lot of our people, just be more open and eager uh, to share the love of Christ. People are going to go to hell if they don't 
meet and put their trust in Jesus. So in the previous workshop, I talked about some ways to use relational wisdom going out into the community, teaching wisdom principles, even if it's in a secular format. We've got a secular program now called Values-Based Relational Wisdom. So there's no explicit gospel or Bible verses. We paraphrase a lot of things. But it's something we use to go out into businesses, for example, military bases, schools, sports camps, teach relational principles and draw people into the more advanced online training, which has a lot of links that will take them over to biblical principles, biblical content, and the gospel itself. And you could actually train people in your church to be going out into your community. If you're concerned about church growth, of adding new people to your church, it's a very effective way to get out in your community, serve the community, and have people end up walking through the door on Sunday saying, I want to check your church out. So there's, um, there'll be more on our website. I'll be doing a blog on it in just a few weeks. But it's a program you can use for evangelism. Um, relational leaders show amazing grace to people who leave their churches. Um, let's face it. When someone leaves our church, we feel rejected. When I was an elder and people left the church, I smiled. I didn't overtly respond. But inside, I was feeling like, ooh, somehow we didn't measure up. Somehow there was some deficiency here. So it, it hurts. And I think it hurts pastors most of all. Because in a sense, they're saying something about you and this church is not meeting my need, and I'm rejecting you. And it hurts. And I've seen some pastors handle that in a way that was really sad. One, pa- one lady told me that um, this pastor had been like a father to her. She, she was raised in the church when she met a, uh, her husband, and they got married, and he was Reformed, and she was drawn into the Reformed faith, and they decided to move over to Reformed church. This pastor was so hurt that when he ran into her in the grocery store, he would turn his back on her and walk away. Just sad. So there's a couple of articles that there's linked on the, the PDF. On number one, how do you as leaders show amazing grace? Um, we had a policy in our church. Always in our membership class, we actually said we want a commitment from you that if you've got issues or concerns about how we're leading this church, anything, will you please come and talk to us about them? We want to hear. And we, our commitment to you is to listen to those with an open mind, and you'll help us see things we can't see. And we can continue to grow if we have that kind of open conversation. And even to the point where if, if something is bothering you so much you're thinking of leaving, please talk to us because we may have a blind spot, and you may help us to see it. Or if maybe there's something that we're doing or not doing and we just can't change. Um, and, and maybe it would be better for you to be in another church. And if so, please don't just walk out the door. Uh, we are your shepherds, and our job is to make sure if you can't be in this lot, we want to help you find another church where you are well cared for. And we will walk with you there. We will commend you to that church. And I remember one woman, one couple came to me. I was the elder, and they were going to leave the church. And the reason was we didn't, have a sun, we didn't have a Christmas tree in the sanctuary at Christmas. Now, that seemed really trivial to me, but that was part of her background, and she just loved it and everything else. That was the issue. And I, you know, I mentioned it to the elders in a session meeting. We just all agreed, no, we're, that's just nothing necessarily wrong, but we're just not going to go that way. So I came back, sat down with her and her husband, said, you know, I've talked, and I'm sorry, but that's just, we just, we, that's just not something we're going to do. So can I help you find another church where you can be comfortable and have all your needs met? And she looked at me for a minute. She says, do we have to leave? I said, no, no, you don't have to leave, but if you're going to. It's like when I sort of opened the door for her. 
she suddenly just decided she didn't want, and she stayed in the church. But I was prepared. I, I knew three other churches in town that I thought would have really suited them well. So you want to have that kind of thing. And if someone does leave, my practice is, you know, we want to talk about it, make sure there's no unresolved conflict, that they can depart in peace. But I'll put a note on my phone to call them in 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days. How's it going? How are you doing? Is God blessing you there? And you want to leave the door open. Because if it doesn't work out so well, we've had some people that actually came back because we didn't burn bridges. But there's another related article there for members on how to leave, when to leave. And I think you should be part of membership class. It's okay, this is our philosophy. These are the issues we think are legitimate reasons to leave a church. But here's the process we think we should go through. Get a commitment from people right up front so that if there are people leaving, it doesn't create ill will. Okay, real quickly, a couple other things. There's, a, there's an article on church planning that's referred in, in the PDF online. And it's just a process that I, I designed on how do you involve the congregation? Too often in our churches, if we're elder-led, some of us mean that every decision, every insight, every plan is made by the elders. And the church is just there like the, the trailer on a you know, semi, just following the truck down the road. And then you wonder why your people aren't buying into it and being enthusiastic and investing the time and energy. They had no, they had no role in making your, your plan for the next two, three years. So I just personally, philosophically believe, involve them. Get their ideas. What, is, what would they like to see? We need, we need to reach out more effectively to our high schools. We need to have a better youth ministry. We need to draw new people. We're not doing any evangelism in our community. Find out what your people are passionate about. Pray about it. Get their involvement. Get their commitment. So there's a whole process there of doing it. And then I actually describe how um, Lake Baldwin Church down in Orlando, a PCA church, beautiful process of involving the congregation in their planning process every year. They've got a very energized congregation. Another blog that's on there is on leadership uh, transitions. <clears throat> I've mentioned forced pastoral exits several times a day. They're painful. They're excruciating. Um, people's lives are sometimes embittered for the rest of their lives to these things. Churches are wounded. When you force a pastor out, not only does he leave with his heartbroken, his wife's heartbroken, but there's often a lot of people that leave too, and other people hold back their giving. It's devastating the whole thing. So when you're going to do a church transition, leadership transition, we have a, a process we recommend, just T-R-U-T-H, but it's to avoid having what we call leadership transitions, the good, the bad, and the clumsy. Um, I've got a picture of Clint Eastwood on the top of the block, the good, bad, and the ugly. But I've seen a few church transitions or leadership transitions that were bad. I mean, someone with real malice, but those are you usually don't see just overt, deliberate malice. Um, I've seen some really good transitions. I describe some in there, the principles they follow, very successful transitions. The ones that I usually get involved in as a mediator have been what I call clumsy. Well-intended leaders, they think they're doing the right thing. It makes perfect sense to them, and yet they don't really think, well, hold it now, how's this going to come across to our pastor? How's his wife going to read this? How's this group of supporters in the church who love him passionately? They've been with him 50 years. He's been our pastor. How are they going to read this? And just the whole process of having open conversation, inviting input, listening to people, practicing other awareness, practicing empathy, those things can make all the difference in the world. The T in that acrostic is transparency. 
most of the, most of the uh, bad transitions I've seen is people were not being transparent. They weren't having honest, open conversations. They were just driving their political agenda forward. So that would be something. The other thing, one church I worked with recently, the pastor, I, I knew of this church for some time, and one of the elders 10 years earlier had told me one of his concerns was that their pastor was a spendthrift. He wasn't saving up much money for retirement. And as he talked, I said, you know what? You're going to run into an issue someday because you're going to get to the point where you really think it's time for him to retire. And he's going to come back to you and say, I just don't have enough money saved. And you're going to feel obligated to keep him along after his shelf date because he can't afford to retire. And it's exactly what happened 10 years later. So just getting issues out, planning that retirement. Is your pastor going to have enough? Um, <clears throat> last thing I would just say here, sir, fo follow up. There's some websites. There is a, just make a note of this. This is where you can download the PDF with all the live links. And there's articles on almost every key point that I've made here. And then these are some of the other things. So let's just take one or two minutes for any questions you have. Yeah. Yeah, there, no, yes, in the sense that being empathetic, realizing that, engaging that would be very important, but you would obviously adjust all of this depending if people had some of those mental, emotional things. So, and I'm not an expert on the autism. I would say, though, this. I've had, I've had a number of mothers come back to me and say that the basic principles that we teach have helped them with autistic children. So, and I, I forget exactly what specifically the scenario was doing, but empathy just goes a long way. Just trying to understand people. They, they know if you love them. They know if you care about them. Did you engage them? Yes. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, Myers-Briggs personality type. Mm -hmm. So do different personality types learn this better than other types? And do you teach people differently depending yeah. on their... Yeah, I, I, different personalities definitely learn it differently. It's like piano. Some people are just prodigies and other people like me clunk. Um, and, and I've seen people, and even the whole thing about um, the broad thing, introvert, extrovert, you know, just two broad categories. But I can tell you this, when the Bible says that part of God's work in our lives is to conform us to the likeness of Christ, I would say no matter where we start, we're like spokes on a wheel. And whether it's Myers-Briggs or other things, we can all be moving closer to that. The, the process is different. The things we need to change is different. We do not have anything that specifically says, you know, if this is your designation, Myers-Briggs, then do this. Uh, we teach the broad principles. But each one of us will apply them a little bit differently. So, but I think you would find the broad principles in Scripture can be applied to any personality type. And we can all change and grow. Yes? When do you know that you built up enough uh, <clears throat> Yeah, when do you know you built up enough passport? It depends on the issue, how big the crisis is, how big, it's like a bridge. How much is the load going to be? Um, and I would say don't ever get the attitude that, yeah, I've built it up enough and I don't need to keep investing. Every, every time you get into the pulpit, you're building passport. They're, they're seeing a compassionate, realistic, knowledgeable person up there preaching. And as you step out of the pulpit, um, I'll, I'll just, I'll close with one story of, of a great example of this. A pastor, um, actually was in my church, during a sermon, no, the, the practice was that during the, the worship service, we allow people to stand up and share a prayer request. And a woman stood up, shared a prayer request, and our pastor cut her off. And it was, I mean, everybody was like, 
It was just, it was so abrupt. And it was not characteristic of him. It was like, mm. and I was sitting way in the back of the church. I turned to my wife, Corlette. I said, watch what happens after the worship service is over. And I knew exactly what happened. It was over. They prayed, did the benediction. Two of the elders sitting closer to the front went right up to the, to the pastor. We've got that kind of relationship. He, he'd done a big congregational blooper. Went right up and grabbed him. And I could I just watching their body line. They're talking to him. He just went like that. And he looked around for her and went, made a beeline to that woman and got to her before she left the room to apologize to her. By that time, a lot of the people were dispersing, so he couldn't do more. The next Sunday, first thing he said was, listen, I need, to, I need to ask you forgiveness. Last Sunday, I did. Now, the world would say you would lose respect. He gained respect. He gained passport. So, We would love to serve you, be in touch with us. If there's any way we can, thank you so much. Bye. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.